We welcome all of you to our worship service. If you're visiting with us, we are very glad to have you. And of course, hope that you will join us uh, from now on. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book, the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, something we've been uh, studying for several weeks. It's on page 966. If you want to use the Bible that's uh, there in the pew. And I recommend that because uh, we'll be looking at different parts of this passage. As we talk about this subject, what difference does the resurrection make? What difference does the resurrection make? We'll begin reading with chapter 4, verse 16. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him for We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people and celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the turning point of history, the declaration of the future of history, not only of our own resurrection, of our own redemption, of our own sins being paid for, but the very transformation of the whole of creation. Lord, we rejoice that we are a part of that, that we have been caught up into the resurrection already, that it is at work in us with 
the renewal of life with acceptance with God and the hope of a future resurrection. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in you. We give you praise, Lord, that wherever we are, wherever we go, whatever happens to us, nothing can separate us from this love that has been accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we think about our own brother, Martin Reddy, who is with us for the last time today, and we pray that your spirit would continue to be with Martin, that you would bless him uh, as he moves to Georgia, and that, Lord, you would connect him with your people and that you would make him prosper in every way. Uh, Lord, continue your great work in Martin as well, we ask. And Lord, as we come to this word, we ask that you would open up our hearts to receive this word, to be encouraged about the tremendous enrichment of the resurrection in every part of our lives. Oh, Lord, bring it to pass in our hearts. For for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. So what difference does the resurrection make? The first point I'm going to introduce with a quote from Michelangelo. Uh, Some of you may know this, but there are four canvases of Michelangelo in the whole world. Most of what he did were murals like the Sistine Chapel or uh, amazing sculptures like Moses or the Pieta or, of course, David itself. Well, of the four canvases, there is one in the Western Hemisphere. That's North and South America. It happens to be in Fort Worth at the Kimball, okay? This is the Michelangelo I'm talking about. All right. Um, But he said a great thing about sculpting. The more the marble wastes, the more the statue grows. The more the marble wastes, the more the statue grows. When we docents take kids through the museum, we talk about what happens with a statue or how it's formed, how it starts with the block and you keep cutting it down, you keep wasting it. But this is what brings forth the statue. It's a great analogy, I think, for the first point that we make this morning that resurrection transforms our present suffering. This is from verses 16 through 18. He says, though our outer self, that is our physical frame, is wasting away, our inner self, our spiritual life that we have with God is being renewed every day. And so in this statement, we all recognize the wasting away of the body, don't we? We all recognize how the, the suffering and the slow death of this life is upon us. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the next point. <clears throat> but he is saying, 
in the midst of this physical loss, and, and uh, Paul himself suffered terrible physical loss day in and day out, there's an inner renewal of the heart. This harks back to what he said when we're being transformed into the same image of Christ from glory to glory. And so he is underscoring that there is a spiritual vitality that breaks out in our lives in the midst of suffering. Some of you have experienced that in repeated contra- uh, contracted uh, loss you have experienced a spiritual vitality. You've experienced more presence of Christ. You've experienced perhaps even the breakout of more love for others, more hope in what God will do in Jesus Christ. And so even in our worst times, our most difficult times, in the worst times of suffering, still this amazing work of being renewed in our spiritual life in the midst of that. It's a beautiful thing that as the marble wastes away, the statue is formed. Lovely, amazing statement by Paul. One of our dear friends, Jamie Cahill, was married to a professional tennis player and was I was in college with her. She's absolutely one of the most vivacious, energetic, full of energy girl you've ever met. Happy, uh, wonderful, engaging, contracted MS at a very young age. And we had not seen her for several months as the disease continued on. And when we saw her, we were really thunderstruck because this vivacious woman was already having to watch her hand grab a glass to make sure she had it, to get it. And of course, now that's far gone in her life. She perceived our trauma, maybe, our difficulty and she said, I want you to know that I have grown so much in my knowledge of Jesus in the midst of MS. I have, I have explored his beauties as never before. That I honestly look at you and I think, I wonder if you have this opportunity. She said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And was looking at us with pity, even as we were looking at her, you know, with that physical pity of what she was going through. She, in a sense, was looking at us with spiritual pity, saying, I know what my suffering has done for me. Is suffering doing that for you? The marble wastes. The statue is formed. And so we see grace that is now in our lives. And this is connected to the grace that is coming. That is, this spiritual renewal is part of what gives us hope and anticipates the final renewal of our physical bodies. This is, in a sense, the germ, 
You see, the very seed, the very beginning of that life that will finally issue in a renewed body altogether and a renewed creation. Because Paul goes on to say this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Here, when he speaks of the eternal weight of glory, he's harking back to verse 14 where he says, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He's anticipating that great day when either those, if if you've died at that point or you haven't died at that point when Jesus comes, you... Your, either your body will be resurrected from the grave or your body will be renewed. Either way, we all will receive new bodies. This is the glory that is beyond all comparison that he anticipates. But notice what works the glory. One commentator put it this way. Affliction generates glory. Affliction generates glory. When it says this light momentary affliction, that is working for us. There's the word that has to do with the inner. That is working for us. It is preparing for us eternal glory. And so we see the renewal in our hearts and we realize that this very affliction is preparing glory for me. Now, think how this transforms present suffering because outside of a relationship with Christ, suffering is the anticipation of final suffering. Suffering is the preview of final suffering. Suffering is the outer edges of the horrible storm of suffering that will break in on our lives in the final day of judgment. And so the resurrection, for those who come into the resurrection, those who trust in Christ who is raised and become a part of that, It's not an anticipation or the foreshadowing of later suffering. It is working glory for them. And in the midst of that suffering, there's this amazing hope of seeing yourself renewed spiritually in the midst of affliction. Knowing this will lead to final resurrection. Oh yeah. Resurrection transforms suffering. It also transforms death. I want to look first at verses 6 through 8. Here Paul is talking about the time of our death. And what happens at the time of our death. He says there 
He speaks of being either at home in the body or away from the Lord or away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so there's this sense of being, in fact, the word could be translated, we're in exile from God or from Christ now. Now, does it mean we're utterly cut off because he says we walk by faith and not by sight. This is probably to make sure we understand this is not that in the body we have no fellowship with him. We walk by faith, but it's not sight. And that probably harks back to verse 18. We look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. You see, we don't walk by Sight, we walk by faith in the things that are unseen. We commune with him and we enjoy him by faith. But here's the wonderful thing. Death is a terrible, catastrophic event that entered into the world because of human sin. It is a disastrous amputation of body and soul. It is ugly through and through. There is no beauty in it. It is a horror that has come upon the human race. That is death. And if suffering is the outer edges of that storm, death is the entrance into that storm of suffering. The terrible nature of death is an announcement of the separation, not only soul from body, but the separation of all things good. You see, in this world, we, even if you despise God or don't believe in God, We believe you enjoy the goodness of that God every day. Even in the midst of terrible suffering, there's a blue sky, there's the breeze, there's a taste of food, there's the comfort of a friend. We're surrounded with the continuing goodness of God that soothes us and comforts us in in hundreds and hundreds of ways. But this, but death, apart from Jesus, death, this terrible separation of life, this terrible ripping of body and soul is the ripping of us from our home and our connection to all goodness in this world and all goodness from God. The sad thing is, is that you say, I don't want God. I don't want his hands on my life. I don't I don't want him to tell me what to do. I don't want to trust him and serve him. I don't want to be a part of God. And the horror of that is that in the final day, you won't have any part in God. But you don't understand all goodness in this world is because of him. And death is the signal that that's gone now. Utterly gone. It will never return. As we stumble into the total absence of the goodness of God. 
And so this disastrous exile from this goodness is transformed by the resurrection that the exile from the body, and that's what Paul calls it, and, and there's some trauma involved in his description, you know, a little like to be absent from the body, kind of says it almost wincingly, yet it's to be home with the Lord. It's to be intimate with Jesus. We will be directly in the presence of this Lord Jesus, at home with him. Apart from that, we are truly homeless. We've lost all relationship. That's the signal of death. All relationship is gone. Forever. And you don't stop wanting relationship. But you don't have relationship. Now, Paul says, you have ultimate relationship ultimate relationship with Christ and included in that is the relationship with all of his people in glorious intimacy and happiness forever now we are home and the indication is that there's a heightened intensified interpersonal communion with Christ there's a perfect sense of being loved for the first time in your life and the exhilaration and the freedom that that will bring you a heart suddenly bursting with happiness euphoria hilarity you might call it an everlasting rush that never goes away all of that then in our disembodied state looking for the final day when we will even then receive a new body But in the meantime, think how resurrection transforms death. It also transforms death, not only in the anticipation of being with Christ when we die, but it transforms death in the anticipation of receiving the new body. That's what he talks about in verses 1 through 4. All of this is based upon or flowing from what he said in verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. Okay? Then he speaks of the eternal glory in verse 17. And now he gets into some beautiful description. If this tent... That is our earthly home. And so he's speaking of this earthly body, okay? Using tent probably to indicate its temporary nature. Now, what's interesting about this, Paul is not, he makes clear here, he's not looking forward to the disembodied state, which he calls naked or unclothed in this passage. He even makes sure, that's not what I'm looking forward to. I have to endure it, and I'll be with Jesus. That's wonderful, okay? But he, he makes sure we long for what? We, in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That's what we long for, to put on the new body. And it's interesting that in verse 4, it says that, 
the mortal is swallowed up, right? What is mortal is swallowed up by life. So looking at it from the side of life, life comes and swallows up our existence or transforms our existence. Looking from this way, Paul describes it as we long to be clothed with that new existence and not be found disembodied or naked. He may even be taking a shot at the uh, Corinthian heretics who were looking for a time where they could get free of their bodies because they were so influenced by the Greeks who thought that the body was a prison house, as it's described in the Orphic uh, Declaration, that it's a prison to be from which we want to be released that they remade the gospel itself into being that. And Paul is underscoring, that's not what we're after. That's not what we long for. We long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We long to be clothed with the new life that he will bring us. Even then there will be a total person enjoyment of Christ. Body and soul and body. And we will be made just like Christ because our bodies will be like his body. So our fellowship that has begun after death will have this final consummation and perfection as it envelops the whole of our being and our being is renewed and restored body and soul. And that horrible exile that occurred, that horrible, disastrous amputation of body and soul will be renewed and will be made even like our Savior and be brought into the most consummated enjoyment of Christ's soul and body. What will it be like to be like Christ? And therefore to be made perfect in joy as well, because we will be perfected in love. And so the groaning of all creation is mentioned as well in the Bible. Paul, using this same word, we groan for this. He says, all of creation groans for this. All creation groans for the kings and queens of creation, humanity, to enter into this final resurrected glory so that this will then set it free as well. So this is cosmic. It's giant. And when he says the mortal would be swallowed up by life, now we have the opposite, right? The saddest, saddest place I ever go is a nursing home. I, I never will get over it. I heard a guy who works with electric eels say one time, you never get used to an electric eel shocking you. I never get used to it. Every time I go in, I have to brace myself to see the vacant looks of dozens and dozens of people. And you see, in a sense, their their humanity that's just been eaten away. Physically, they can't do anything. Mentally, they can hardly think. 
They don't recognize you. They'll speak to me and not even know who I am, think I'm somebody else. And they'll just say something out of nowhere. And emotionally, their personalities. I, over and over again, I just long see some 93-year-old woman sitting there with her mouth hanging open and her hands shaking. I think, what were you at 17? What were you at 21 and 25? You might have been beautiful to look at. You may have been stunning. You may have had this wonderful, energetic personality and all these gifts. And now, now, mortal is swallowing up life now. Death is eating away at your life now. It's interesting. I looked afresh at some of the charts on, for instance, NFL quarterbacks. Okay? Starts to peak at 25. It takes them a few years to get into it and get good. And it goes to 30, kind of fades from 30 to 35, and then it falls off to 40. Just a few exceptions, like Manning, for instance, okay? And then I've kept up regularly with PGA Tour for years since so much available on the internet and you can check scores and check history and it's interesting to watch their earnings over the years and almost without fail by 40 and certainly by 45 3 million 4 million goes to under a million goes to, and it's gone why they're dying you understand they're dying. You're dying. I'm dying. Death is swallowing up life. But here, here, Paul says, no, then life will swallow up death. Mortality will be swallowed up by life and transformed into everlasting life to a glory beyond all comparison. The, the, he uses this word that means excessive, but he uses it twice. And this translation gets at it pretty good. So we will have a glory to a degree immeasurable and to a degree exceeding all bounds. You, you, you can hardly get at what it says. This weight, this solidness, this reality of the new glory that will be yours with your new body and the new creation. That's what makes light the present suffering, right? Otherwise, it's heavy and burdensome and has total confusion and darkness and it leads to death and destruction. But with this perspective that if my affliction is working this eternal glory beyond all comparison, this is a new world. Resurrection makes a difference in death.
And then briefly, you say that, you know, so that you, okay, I'll hang with you if it's briefly. But <laughs> at this point, right? hang with me, it's brief, okay. Um, finally, it transforms judgment. Transforms judgment. This statement in verse 10, we must all appear, is a pretty good consensus that this is speaking of believers, in this particular instance, some cases don't, but this is talking about believers. And so it's carried out, this judgment in the, uh, before the throne of Christ, in the realm of acceptance, of being justified and forgiven. But there is a real assessment of you and me, inside and out, okay? Words and actions, everything. The good and the bad, as he says. And in some way, it determines something of the reward, perhaps the intensity or immensity of individual blessing, but all in the realm of blessing and glory. That's judgment if you belong to Jesus, if you're a part of the resurrection headed for resurrection life. If you're part of the resurrection, which, as our catechism said, means you're a part of the righteousness and acceptance that Jesus has won for you. You're part of being forgiven because of the resurrection. Otherwise, otherwise, Paul says in another place in Romans 2, Those who are self-seeking, those who refuse the truth, that is, refuse the good news, refuse to embrace Christ, and refuse to see the loveliness of God's sacrifice for sinners, refuse His kind grace of forgiveness, refuse to follow His uh, glorious uh, authority, His kind oversight, and live in unrighteousness, He says, you are storing up wrath for that day. Like affliction for us is working glory every day outside of Christ. Storing up wrath. Storing up wrath. That's the difference of the resurrection. That's the difference of the resurrection. And Paul says there, wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress will break out forever. The resurrection, huge difference in suffering, huge difference in death, and all the difference in the world in judgment. You see, therefore, the resurrection changes Everything It changes every part of your life. When you have this hope, when you have this acceptance through the resurrection, when you know that you're the beloved of God because of the resurrection, because it affirms that his death took care of sin, then it begins to change your loss, your mistreatment in your life, your emptiness. It begins to transform your fears that generates so much anxiety and anger in your life. And having hope sweetens days. It gives you hope in the midst when you believe, I'm caught up in the resurrection life in my marriage. I have hope that God will continue to change me, will make me different. 
because I'm caught up in the resurrection life. Because of this debilitating, nagging sin habits will be changed. They will for sure be changed because you're caught up in resurrection. One of the greatest scenes in a movie to me was when Betsy Tinboom died in the Ravensbrück concentration camp in 1944. And her sister, Corey Tinboom was left and lived years on. But she quoted 1 Corinthians 15 that speaks about resurrection. And you had this amazing sense that whatever they did to Betsy Timboom's body, whatever slow ebbing of its life and the suffering and the cruelty, finally so that she was dead... They couldn't stop resurrection. And though they did that to her body, God was going to do something else for her body. And even in the midst of that, she fellowshiped with God and more and more manifested the beauty of God to those around her so that others were influenced. You can't stop the resurrection. Can't stop its effects in your life now. Can't stop what it will do at death and what it will bring about in judgment. The resurrection changes everything. Let us pray. Oh Lord, bless us to trust you. Lord, to embrace the resurrection as Paul says. We are to confess Christ and believe that God raised him from the dead. Oh, Lord, that means to believe that Christ paid for sins. Believe that in trusting in this resurrected one, my sins will be taken away. I will be brought into acceptance with God. I I will be forgiven. I will begin to commune with this God And his resurrection will begin working in my life immediately, renewing me, even in the midst of suffering, creating for me in my very afflictions a glory beyond comparison. And I will long for that new body. And even if I die and I'm exiled from this body and this world, I will be at home with Jesus Until the final day when he will give me a new body and will renew this earth from which I was exiled. And then I will reign with him in this new heaven and earth. Oh, Lord. Oh, we pray. If any here have kept themselves away from the resurrection of Christ. May they forever trust in that great work of Jesus for your glory and honor. Amen.